Welcome to Condensed Matter, condensing recent work in metaphysics and the philosophy of science down to what matters. I'm your host, Sam Kimpton Knight. The focus of this episode is Timothy Williamson's article, Disagreement in Metaphysics. This is currently a draft as of the 15th of January 2021 for the Routledge Handbook of the Philosophy of Disagreement. I'll put a link to the PDF in the show notes. Metaphysics, like all areas of philosophy, is ripe with disagreement. Physicalists and non-physicalists disagree about whether there exist non-physical types of things, such as minds, as distinct from the physical matter from which brains are made. Nihilists and universalists disagree about when some parts compose a whole. Nihilists say never, universalists say always. And while some think that a statue is identical to the piece of clay from which it's composed, others think that a statue is a mere part of the temporally extended lump of clay that also has non-statue parts. But what's going on when metaphysicians disagree with each other? Realists think that, at least some of the time, disagreement in metaphysics is a substantial matter concerning the deepest, most general nature of reality. But many think that the scope of disagreement in metaphysics is far less lofty. In this paper, Williamson examines arguments to the effect that disagreement in metaphysics can be deflated and exposes various problems for deflationary meta-metaphysics. One way of motivating a deflationary attitude to disagreement in metaphysics is by appeal to the idea of charitable interpretation. A notable feature of many metaphysical disputes is that one side seems to assert something that contradicts what seems to be obviously true. So for example, One might deny that there are such things as tables, chairs and other ordinary objects on the grounds that all that really exists is atoms in the void. But being a good philosopher means striving to not attribute obviously false beliefs to people. Rather, we should prefer to attribute to people beliefs that are consistent with common sense. So perhaps we should reinterpret metaphysicians who appear to deny the obvious. The question now, however, is... Is it thus impossible for inquiry to reveal errors in common sense? Surely not. Indeed, much contemporary science seems to do just this. General relativity, for example, showed that our space-time is not Euclidean, something that Kant thought was a priori. But Williamson goes further to argue that attempts to interpret participants in metaphysical debates as not really disagreeing rely on an outdated account of linguistic meaning, according to which the meaning of a word is constitutively determined just by how the individual uses it. In actual fact, it is more plausible that meaning is determined socially, not individually. But in this case, reinterpretation of the metaphysician's face-value assertions would amount to accusing them of being incompetent communicators, which is hardly charitable. Furthermore, Williamson argues that to constantly reinterpret metaphysicians in dialogue as not really disagreeing with each other, would be to violate the principle of charity because rather than charitably interpreting the dialogue as knowledge conducive, it effectively silences at least one side as opposed to allowing the strengths and weaknesses of both sides to be brought out into open debate. According to another deflationary approach to metaphysics that has recently been made popular by Amy Thomason and which has its roots in Carnap, ostensibly metaphysical questions such as are there numbers are easy because they are trivially true given the relevant linguistic framework that contains numbered terms. Disagreements in metaphysics are then understood not as being about non-linguistic, mind-independent reality, 
but as practical questions about which language is useful for some purpose. Call this metaphysics as metalinguistic negotiation. Williamson thinks that there are some cases of disguised metalinguistic negotiation in metaphysics, but that these are likely to be marginal. He offers three comments in response to this form of deflationism about disagreement in metaphysics. First, William seems to suggest that use-mentioned fallacies are common in metalinguistic negotiation, and so it seems he is concerned that assimilating metaphysical disputes to metalinguistic negotiation may again turn out to be uncharitable if the latter is steeped in use-mentioned fallacies. Second, Williamson points out that the metaphysician's reasons for caring about the use of her terms, as per metalinguistic negotiation, are often highly metaphysical. They use a word a certain way in order to carve nature at its joints or make deeper distinctions. Hence, metalinguistic negotiations take us right back into metaphysics. Third, Williamson highlights the fact that there are important constraints on terminological choices. One might think that disputes about personal identity are prime candidates for being understood as cases of metalinguistic negotiation. But surely, whatever conditions we impose on the word person, we should at least want to include ourselves within its extension. If the word person only applied to mechanical robots, we would not count as persons, and so we would have got the extension of the term wrong. But it follows from this that we must settle our own metaphysical status in the course of our investigations of the extension of the term person. And as Williamson puts it, one cannot answer the question, what am I, by mere linguistic stipulation. So Williamson disagrees with the deflationist. He denies that metaphysical disputes deflate. What's more, he crafts his account of metametaphysics to make it inconsistent with the deflationist's metametaphysics. So the meta-dispute doesn't deflate, Williamson maintains. Nevertheless, one might be concerned about a failure of convergence between deflationists, such as Thomason, and realists, such as Williamson. And one might worry about the epistemology of the meta-dispute. Thus it seems that the types of argument that support deflationism about metaphysics will support deflationism about meta-metaphysics at least as strongly. But deflationism about metametaphysics takes the sting out of the likes of Thomason's deflationary metametaphysical stance. There's something self-defeating about deflationism, it seems. Williamson also points out that metametaphysics cannot remain neutral with respect to first-order metaphysics. One particular problem seems to come from logic. Presumably, metametaphysics needs logic, but as Williamson has argued extensively elsewhere, contrary to what many would like to believe, logic is not metaphysically neutral. Williamson notes that every standard logical principle has been challenged on metaphysical grounds. For example, the law of excluded middle, which says that P or not P is logically true, has been thought to fail for future contingents. Some will say that it's neither true nor false that there will be a sea battle tomorrow. And Hilary Putnam, for example, has argued that standard logical axioms break down at the quantum level. Williamson himself has argued that we should think that Anything that exists, exists necessarily, because this follows from the simplest modal logic. The point then is just that logic is plausibly not understood as being metaphysically neutral. So any metametaphysics that assumes some logic makes some tacit metaphysical assumptions too. So metametaphysics is not really neutral with respect to first order metaphysics. Williamson argues further that metametaphysics requires semantics but that semantics is not metaphysically neutral either because it invokes such entities as possible worlds, times and functions, and that some stance must be taken on the metaphysics of these entities. Thomason, Williamson's main target in this paper, maintains that only the epistemology of conceptual analysis and of empirical inquiry are unproblematic. 
Hence, to the extent that metaphysics is neither conceptual analysis nor empirical inquiry, its epistemology is deeply problematic, and this motivates her deflationary meta-metaphysics. Williamson's response is to deny Thomason's premise about the unproblematic nature of the epistemology of conceptual analysis and empirical inquiry. Regarding conceptual analysis, Williamson argues that there are no clear rules for the use even of logical terms such as if, every, and no. Settling on rules for the use of these terms requires serious theoretical work and controversial decisions to be made. Things are even worse than for non-logical vocabulary. And regarding empiricism, Williamson retorts that, and I quote, Calling a method empirical does not make it epistemologically unmysterious. It does not explain how, if at all, the method yields knowledge. How the content of the empirical judgment is related to the causal interaction with the environment underlying sense perception. End quote. In short, then, metametaphysics is steeped in metaphysics, and Williamson thinks there is no easy treatment of the metaphysical issues that arise for metaphysics because the easy methodology, one involving conceptual analysis, is itself epistemologically suspect. Hence, the epistemological critique of metaphysics that motivates deflationism generalises to metaphysics itself, and so the critique is self-defeating. A key claim in this paper seems to be that the epistemological concerns regarding metaphysics generalise to metaphysics, which, in turn, undermines or takes the sting out of a deflationary metaphysics. But one may reasonably be concerned that there is little solace for the realist metaphysician to take from this alone. The lesson one may choose to take from worries about the epistemology and methodology of metaphysics and metametaphysics is that we should just stop doing metaphysics and metametaphysics. This needn't be crafted into some positive metametaphysical proposal that then turns out to be self-defeating, but could just be construed as putting an end to the discussion and the discipline of metaphysics. The real burden then on the realist metaphysician seems to be in coming up with a plausible methodology and epistemology for metaphysics that eases concerns to the effect that metaphysics isn't even possible. Now Williamson in other writings does have plenty to say on this score, some of which is hinted at when he says, and I quote, Once we get serious about the epistemology of empirical methods, we may well find all sorts of connections with the epistemology of metaphysics. For example, the recognitional capacities we use online in perception may also be used offline in imagination when we assess counterfactuals and do thought experiments. The broad idea seems to be that the methods of and epistemological problems faced by science and metaphysics are not so different. Indeed, this came out in the discussion of Hugh Price on Quine and Carnap in episode 18. So if we want to put a stop to metaphysics due to concerns with its methodology, we should similarly want to put a stop to science but this now looks too radically sceptical or defeatist a position to be taken seriously. I think this really is the crux of the matter then. There are deep puzzles and concerns for realist metaphysics, but these generalise such that it's incredibly hard to say why science, to the extent that it's construed not merely pragmatically, but as actually telling us about the nature of the world, is any better off. I'd even go further to say that metaphysics, or the community of metaphysicians, is, for the most part, actually in particularly good standing with respect to this problem, because of its acute awareness of its own methodology and the limitations therein. See, for example, last week's episode for evidence of this. Williamson is onto something important in that metametaphysics is just, in a sense, more metaphysics. I think metaphysicians are generally awake to this, and so open to engaging with metametaphysical questions for their own sake, and in the course of their first-order investigations, whereas those who shun metaphysics are effectively just choosing to bury their heads in the sand. Thanks for listening to Condensed Matter. 
please rate and review the show on your favourite app so that more people can find it. There's also a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode notes. Your support will help towards the costs associated with hosting and production and will lead to improvements in your future listening experience. Patrons of the show will also get the chance to suggest articles and guests for future episodes. 